Welcome to Two-Way Street. I'm Bill Nygut. During the first four years of Two-Way Street, we've had some extraordinary musical artists on the show. Two of our favorites were Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn. Two years ago, they won a Grammy Award for Best Folk Record, which put them on the map as the royal family of Roots music. I spoke with them this past March, just after the release of their new album, Echo in the Valley, which added to their lofty reputation. Back before they met, fell in love, and were married, Abby and Bela were each establishing themselves as unique performers. He'd become a star with Bela Fleck and the Flecktones and was expanding the range of the banjo into jazz and classical music. She had discovered the haunting beauty of American roots music in the last place you might expect, while studying law and the Mandarin language in China. So she too took up the banjo. And even as she began singing and playing with artists in China, she eventually came home and established herself as one of America's great root singers. When we sat down to talk with them, it quickly became obvious that despite their great success, they're about as down to earth as the roots music they love. Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn, thank you so much for uh, joining me for a two-way street. It's a real thrill having heard your new record, Echo in the Valley, to uh, have you here. Thanks for having us, Bill. Yeah, I appreciate it. You both came to the banjo in uh, different ways, uh, with different inspirations. And Bela, if I can start with you, uh, I know that this is the artist who really uh, turned you on to the banjo in the first place. Now here's the Flat and Scruggs Grand Ole Opry Show, brought to you by Martha White Mills. Millers of Martha White Hot Rise Flour, Corn Meal, and Cake Mixes. Lester Flat. Much obliged, T, and all the friends and neighbors. Let us see. It's real good to be back with you. Hope we got something lined out. You're going to enjoy it a little bit. Earl Scruggs, if you're ready, bring the old five string and let's do Earl's breakdown. The great Earl Scruggs. What was it that captured your attention when you heard Earl Scruggs play the banjo? Wow. Well, first of all... Isn't that let, a great clip? Well, that was awesome. But first, let me compliment your incredible taste in liking our our recording and, <laughs> and, and having us on the show. You're a very highly evolved human being. And uh, and I was thinking that, that already, and then you played that clip, and then it, you just shot into the stratosphere for me. Cause that was That's the cool. That is the cool. Yeah. Like, um, that's the banjo being cool in, a, in another, for coming from another time to us here today and us realizing how cool it still is. Uh, Earl Scruggs had this magic something in his playing that would turn um, a, a, it would turn a banjo person who hadn't been activated yet into a, ban- a, you know, a slobbering banjo freak. 
And I was one of those. And um, I, I didn't even know what the banjo was, but I heard it in New York City as a, as a kid on the Beverly Hillbillies show. And that banjo that you just heard came on, just started cracking in the background of that theme. And um, I was just hooked. I had no cultural context to like the banjo, or I didn't know about bluegrass or folk music or anything at that point. So it just reached out and grabbed me. And come to find out, as I've gotten to know all of these great uh, three-finger style players, like I am, uh, and like Earl Scruggs was, that they almost all have had a come-to-Earl moment that turned them into banjo players. Um, so that's the story. And, and uh, we were really fortunate, um, both me and actually, and Abby too, got, got to be really close with Earl before he passed. And um, that's a very valuable thing to, to us. It's, um, yeah. how, how old were you, do you, do you uh, imagine, when you first uh, listened to Earl Scruggs? And what, what was your trajectory at that point in your life? I I don't exactly know because I, I um all I know is my grandparents still lived in Queens so I had to be somewhere between four and six, okay. I'm guessing but I don't know I, I was somewhere in there and and it was uh, another context thing is my my older brother who's a year older was there and he heard it as well and it had absolutely no impact on him but for me it was a life changing moment that I remembered from then on but it took me years to actually get a banjo because when you hear a banjo and you're not you've never been around them it's not something you could imagine a human being actually being able to do it's uh it's so mathematical and so old-fashioned at the same times i always call it high-tech primitive what earl scruggs sounded like yeah he played with such eloquence but such speed and precision uh but with heart too i think that's the combination yeah. isn't it yeah, he has that thing that when you think about somebody like B.B. King or Coltrane or some, you know, the, or, or Miles, they have this thing, and it goes all the way back to Africa for me. Like when I got to go to Africa and hear music from there, great artists from there have this same old sound, um, this amazing connection to, I don't know, the earth or something. I don't know what it is. But when you hear it in a musician, it's very, very profound. Abby, uh, you came to the banjo uh, thanks to the influence of another great American roots artist. Let's listen to him. <laughs> Cheeks as red as a blooming rose And eyes of the prettiest brown She's the darling of my heart Sweet little girl in town I wish I had a glass of wine And bread and meat for two I'd set it out on a golden plate And give it all to you Shady Grove, my little love Shady Grove, I say Shady Grove, my little love I'm bound to go away Pick it, David What did you hear when you heard Doc Watson uh, singing Shady Grove, Abby? I was at a party in college, and uh, somebody put that record on, and I was just drawn to the corner of the room where the record player was, and I just kept listening to it. And, um, well, I should say that I was about 20 or 21 when I heard that, and I was 18 the first time I went to China. This sounds unrelated, but um, I got really intensely into Asian studies and Chinese studies and so immersed that... um, I spent very little time thinking about American culture and a lot of time thinking about Chinese culture. It just is um, really striking when you come from a young country, a nation like the United States of America, and you go to a place like China. It's really striking to see how far back those roots go. And um, I had not, the way I was brought up in, in my the, the cultural surroundings in the suburbs of D.C. and Minneapolis and Chicago, I I wasn't aware of the roots culture of Appalachia. And when I heard Doc Watson singing playing late in college after this immersion in Chinese culture, I was so drawn to it because I, I, 
I wished there was something American that was ancient and hmm. powerful and beautiful um, in the way I had seen things in China. And when I heard Doc, I heard all of it. I heard the ancient, I heard the powerful, I heard the beautiful, I heard the soulful, and I heard something that was closely connected to who I am and where I come from. And I immediately was really proud of it and went out and bought a banjo and decided I'd take it back with me to China. I've heard you sing Shady Grove, and you add an Appalachian edge to it that's even more pronounced than the way Doc Watson uh, sings this song. I suppose, although I don't think anything could get more Appalachian from, than Doc Watson well, from Deep Gap, North Carolina. <laughs> but um, well, okay, okay. I, but enough. I definitely, I would say that as soon as I started singing this music, I'm, I felt very naturally fit to it, um, mm-hmm. and the intensity of it, and the um, sort of the high lonesome call of it, um, all of it just felt really, really natural in my voice and in who I am, and I'm so grateful for that. You caught me. Because that was just what? my way to ask you if you'd sing just a couple of lines of Shady Grove. Oh, for us. <laughs> I see. Okay, okay. <clears throat> Let's just say <clears throat> it's the morning, but okay. Shady Grove, my little love. Shady Grove, my darling. Shady Grove, my little love. I'm going back to Harlan. Oh, I love. Thank you for doing that. You like that? <laughs> oh, yeah, good. I'm so glad. Of course, I like that. I like that too. <laughs> Don't I like you, Bella? Too. I do. I think Abby has got this natural uh, connection to that music that is sort of hard to explain. Actually, singers that sing this way are very, very rare. And even in the bluegrass and acoustic uh, and old time scene, finding the really, really the special singers, they don't, they just don't come up that often. So, I, and I think Abby's one of those. Thanks, honey. Sure, <laughs> it's clearly true. And, Do I still and have you... to put out the garbage? <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Let's address what you both just referred to uh, at this point. Um, you. Abby, you grew up in the Midwest. Uh, your grandmother was Evanston, Illinois, I think. Uh, Correct. And you yeah, spent a lot time of my there. family is Chicago okay. area. So I grew up in Skokie. You sound like it. I was going to wonder. I was wondering <laughs> if you were a Chicago guy. Yeah, I am. Um, and 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 Bailey, you grew up in in New York. Um, and here's not just what... New York, Queens. <laughs> no, Manhattan. No. Oh, Manhattan. Manhattan. Oh, New yeah. York. When I was in high school, for whatever reason, I discovered the Grand Ole Opry on WSM radio, clear channel yeah. station, so on Saturday nights I could listen to the Opry. And I fell in love with that whole sound. Back in the day when the Opry really was uh, rich with uh, uh, traditional country artists. And you two came to the music, and you've embraced it as your own. Has that journey been, how would you talk about that journey? Uh, I'll address that, um, which it, I felt very inferior for a long time being a New Yorker, not, you know, not just a Yankee, but a New Yorker, um, and, uh, and going into the music and wanting um, to find a home there for some reason that I still don't exactly understand why that, that was the place that I wanted to be. But um, yeah, I felt alien, and, uh, and I felt like I had to work extra hard. Um, and eventually I learned that the very New Yorkness of me was the best thing I could bring to the music instead of feeling like it was going to be um, the big problem. It was actually the offering that I had that I was bringing things from outside of the music and from a different point of view. 
uh, that that always enriches the music. And and I've learned just in my study of of jazz, classical music, and and bluegrass, um, that a lot of the greatest things that uh, that grow the music over the over the years is people co- going outside of it and coming back with a fresh perspective. Yeah. Whether it's again Coltrane coming in with with uh, with all his things that he got outside from classical music and African music, or or Charlie Parker. You know, studying classical music and bringing these these twelve uh, tone ideas or this chromatic and new way of playing um, playing bebop. You know, so so it, th- these all become the mainstream at a certain point. But in the beginning, they're somebody from bringing something from outside. And so I th- realized that was part part of my role. But I wanted to do it in a way that was legitimate, and that meant going to the south and really learning the music from the ground up as well. What you're referring to here is interesting because it, it speaks in some ways to the yin and yang of the two of you. Uh, Bela, you've always been thought of as a progressive bluegrass uh, banjo player. Obviously, you've delved into jazz, to classical music, but the bluegrass community has always seen you as the progressive guy, I assume largely because of what you just said, bringing uh, your outside, your New Yorker sensibility. And, and Abby, you're the kind of rock that grounds this music often, although not all the time, in the more traditional uh, sound of, of, of roots music. Is that a fair description of the two of you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're both adventurers in our own rights, and um, I'm and by, by no means a purist. I don't even come from Appalachia, but um, I have a strong sense of what moves me and what I feel is soulful and what feels connected to the roots of our being. And um, I think I was born into the world, I don't know if this can be in your genetics, but with just a lot of empathy. That's something I've had to learn how to harness and work with in my life. And so I think it's been a really um, a really big part of becoming who I am, uh, becoming a musician, and giving me a lot of strength and something to do, making my empathy into a real strength. Um, and I think before I came into music, I wanted to use that empathy in a way that, with, along with my intellect and all the studying I'd been doing in law and government and things like that, to try to have a positive impact, especially on U.S.-China relations, because I've had the good fortune to fall deeply in love with Chinese culture mm-hmm. through some of the people I've met there, and I've had the good fortune to fall deeply in love with American culture. And... Um, Sharing that with the world is still a big, a big part of what I want to do. And one of the ways that you uh, reached out and bridged the uh, 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 divide between America and China was uh, you started playing music uh, with uh, Chinese uh, uh, artists. We're going to listen to a little bit of a re- recording you made with Wu Fei, who is a Chinese artist who happens to now live in Nashville, right? Correct. She's one of my closest friends, and she moved to Nashville actually to partially to be close to Bale and I with her family, Jeremy and Vivi and Felix. So now we're close to each other, and Bale is producing a record that's going to come out next year of Faye and I. Here's a song that the two of you did together that I think says a lot about both your love for the Chinese culture and the artistry of Chinese musicians, and yet you bring it, you ground it in Americana. Let's listen. <laughs>
Bela, when I hear that, you've, oh, they sound wonderful, don't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait till you hear this rec- this record that they've made. It's uh, it's pretty much all done. It's just incredible. Um, it's just the two of them, and it's just the the cross cultural waves are just flowing rapidly back and forth. It's really something. There's a lot of that sort of bilingual stuff going on where um, the languages are sort of blurred, and that who you don't know who's doing which, um, but they're happening simultaneously. It's been such a treat to get to work with Faye because I've I've been going back and forth to China for 20 years and um, done 16 tours and I've gotten to collaborate a lot with lots of different musicians, but not for long periods of time. It's just sort of for the day or for the week while I'm in China um, or in that particular town. And with Faye here in Nashville, um, and we had several wonderful long stints in China together as well before she moved here, we get to really dive deep and really share our lives and our children and that song in particular came from a place of talking about what songs do you do we sing our children when they're falling asleep at night what are the lyrics that you're singing before you go into the water is wide at the very beginning of that song i guess in like irish music or in american old time music you'd call them kind of nonsense words even though they feel full of meaning they're they're um those words come from a song uh, that she's singing called the Wusuli Boat Song that comes from northeast China from a group of people called the Hudra people who live on a river up there on the border of Russia. And they live their lives on boats and live off of the fish. And they are just simply floating on the water, holding their children and singing that over the water and hearing it reflect and bounce off of the, off of the water. We're going to take a short break right now. When we come back, more of my conversation with Grammy Award-winning Roots duo Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn. We recorded the conversation this past March. just joining us, my guests are Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn. He's considered one of the finest banjo players in the world and has 16 Grammy Awards to prove the point. She is an accomplished root singer and banjo player. They're married and perform now as a duo. Two years ago, they won a Grammy Award for Best Folk Album. I spoke to them this past March following the release of their new album, Echo in the Valley. Is it true that the two of you actually met at a square dance? Yeah, um, I was. Uh, it's actually it was a, a square dance here in Nashville, where we're, where we're taping our portion of this. And uh, I was. It's the only square dance I've ever gone to in Nashville. And a friend of mine named Russ Barenberg, great guitar player, invited me to go play square dance tunes with uh, 
a guy named Patrick Ross who was in visiting, great fiddle player. He said, I think you'll really enjoy Patrick, and I did. And I used to love to go to square dance um, back before I moved down south. When I lived in Boston before I moved to Kentucky, I would go square dance. So I knew a lot of these tunes, and I never get to play them. And so for some reason I went, and Abby happened to be there, and she was dancing, and she lights up the floor when she dances. She, so it was uh, she was hard to miss I do love to dance uh, very much so. And um, Bela was up there playing too many notes, but on simple <laughs> tunes. <laughs> Just doing my job. <laughs> okay, so you two have met at, you met at the square dance, uh, which I can't imagine for two people who are into roots music could possibly be cornier than meeting at a square yeah. dance. Right. Exactly. But yeah. I mean, it wasn't like we didn't get together no, for a while. Didn't. Yeah. But it was the beginning of it. Was the beginning of us knowing each other. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you finally decide to get married, and uh, there's a uh, newsletter, an online publication. It's kind of a cross between a serious look at the bluegrass world and uh, the Onion. Bluegrass Intelligencer. And uh, <laughs> here's the it's way they... It's not serious. <laughs> well, I get that. And so yeah. so here's the, here's the uh, first couple of lines of this story. Uh, Dateline, Nashville. After lengthy negotiations before, between their two camps, banjoists Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn have agreed to marry one another, advancing their long campaign to unify the progressive and old-time banjo empires under a single sovereign ruler. (laughs) Fleck, the king of progressive banjo, dominates a vast empire encompassing most genres of banjo music. Ms. Washburn, the renowned duchess of old-time banjo and song, offers a peaceful way to fill the gap. And it goes on. It's a very funny piece, but it ends... Yeah, it's a great piece. (laughs) And a fiddler, uh, Casey Dreesen, says three words, holy banjo emperor, speaking about the (laughs) progeny of the two of you. (laughs) Wow. We're very proud of our son because although... Uh, we, we have no idea what his path with the banjo will be, although we will follow Earl Scruggs's advice closely, which is, he says, if you want your son to play the banjo, put it on the wall, tell him, don't touch it. <laughs> so we'll, we'll try that. Yeah, we're going to have to try that. Sorry, I have a terrible Earl accent. Your son mm-hmm. is yeah. Juno, and uh, Bela, you wrote a concerto named for your son at one point. two years old saw my father watching golf and um, became completely obsessed and now he's four and a half years old and he's probably played about 25 different golf courses 
Yeah, grown up golf courses. He's actually hit grown up par on a, on a couple of shots now, really? which is amazing. And yeah, it's it's ridiculous. And we'll see if he continues with it. But at least we know he can focus. Yeah. yeah. And if you see two parents on a golf course that have no idea what they're doing and they're following around a little person, that's us. Yeah, we're going to retire into caddying. <laughs> All right, let's let's talk about this uh, extraordinary record you've released. And one of the things that's so beautiful about it is that you do meld your progressive thinking about the music you play with the traditional roots. So with that in mind, let's go back to your inspiration for a minute, Abby, and let's listen to Doc Watson playing this song. Jack Watson's version. Um, when you decided to record that, what did you think you'd want to do with that record? We'll listen in a minute to the song, but what was your thinking about how you did this song? It was actually kind of a, a sleep-deprived, jokey moment when Bela and yeah. I were sound-checking on stage. And I started doing this really... Re- I like to sort of like show-tune things sometimes and then just try them in different styles. And Bela was encouraging me to do that and playing different banjo styles to try to get me to sing this in, in different ways. You're like, My home's across the Blue Ridge Mountains. You know, just getting really yeah. <laughs> Bad, bad jazz. Wow. I didn't know you yeah. were a crooner as well as everything else, Abby. Well, <laughs> Not a good one. Well, let's listen but, uh, to how you recorded this record. You well, could... I don't oh, want to ahead. say that was the inspiration for how we ended up singing. I mean, we, we just started going into this blues, and I started singing it in a sort of a throaty, full-voiced kind of way, thinking that it was hilarious. And then Bela recorded it on his voice memo on his phone, and a few days later, he actually listened to it and was like, uh, Abby, come listen to this. And it, it was actually... Kind had of, potential. It had potential, yeah. and um, we really we shocked ourselves. And then I, we started taking it seriously and and diving into it in a really different from a different way, angle than humor. Well, you I know? think what we realized is the song actually is a blues. It, it, yeah, it's a very sad song. It's not a happy song. All right, so let's listen because you talk about turning it into a blues. Wow, did you ever? <laughs> Expect to see you in 
So one thing that would be fun to point out at this point is that we got to use our bass banjo on that track. Mm. I came across this instrument. I was out on tour, I think with Chris Thiele, uh, doing a duo tour um, a, last, a couple of years ago. And I found this instrument in a, in a store, and I, and I called up Abby, and I said, Hey, honey, I found a bass banjo in this music store up in Rochester, New York. And she said, Don't come home without it. <laughs> <laughs> what does it look like? It's huge. It's, it's, it's the size of a big orchestra drum. That's how big the circle part of the banjo is, the round part. And then there's a neck, and it's actually bigger than an upright bass. So it was made in, I think, 1906. Um, by Fairbanks, and now we we get to carry it around with us. <laughs> Let's take another break right now. When we return, more of our March conversation with Roots duo Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn. Welcome back to Two-Way Street. Today we're listening back to my conversation with Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn. I spoke with them this past March when they had just released their latest album, Echo in the Valley. Bela grew up in Manhattan, but when he was a little kid, he heard Earl Scruggs playing the banjo theme for the TV show The Beverly Hillbillies, and he was hooked. He's now considered one of the best banjo players in the world. Abigail Washburn, who's married to Bela, was inspired to play the banjo and sing bluegrass music after listening to the legendary Doc Watson. Since the birth of their son Juno, they've been performing together as a duo. So let's talk about another song on this record that just is so incredibly moving. And before we play your version of it, Abby, who was Sarah Ogan Gunning? She was a woman born and raised in coal, coal camps in East Kentucky, and her father was a coal miner, and her husband was a coal miner, and her children were raised in the coal camps. And she, um, despite a lot of uh, struggle and suffering, or I suppose in spite of it, she, um, or given that she struggled so much, she decided to turn her perspective and what she was seeing around her in the coal camp uh, into song, and she'd take old Appalachian melodies and twist them up and add her lyrics about what she was experiencing and from a woman's perspective, which isn't uh, that oft recorded and certainly not shared um, in this tradition of music. So um, I found it to be a real treasure when I heard Sarah Ogan Gunning's uh, music and um, the field recordings and the, the songs that had been recorded by her. And this is uh, one of them, and it's called Come All Ye Coal Miners. And it felt particularly meaningful right now 
because of uh, how extreme it feels. Um, Thing, just life is in terms of our our media and this um, this notion that things are either awful or just scary all the time. It just feels like a fear filled time. And uh, so hearing her talk and sing, um, I was reminded that there's a simple plea that we hear throughout the ages, which is for humans to treat other humans well. And that's what I feel her call is in this song as well. She um, she did grow up in poverty and and spent her adult life in poverty in eastern Kentucky. She lost two of her four children. I think at least one of them died of starvation. Times were Correct. so hard. Let's and listen. Her mother. And her mother as well. That I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Let's listen yeah. to Sarah Ogan Gunning singing. Um, Come all you coal miners. Come all you coal miners, wherever you may be, and listen to a story that I'll relate to thee. My name is nothing extra, but the truth to you I'll tell. I am a coal miner's wife, I'm sure I wish you well. One of the verses, coal mining is the most dangerous work in our land today with plenty of dirty slaving work and very little pay. Coal miner, won't you wake up and open your eyes and see what the dirty capitalist system is doing to you and me? It's an incredibly powerful song. And when you hear her voice, you hear all of the pain um, and all of the hard scrabble struggle of her life. Yeah, and you, you, you want to put that in, in another time and another place, but it's not over. It's still going on. And even recently, what we've been finding out about the rate of, of black lung uh, occurring in those communities is, is shocking. It's way out of, out of whack of what everybody thought was going on. You mean now? Right now. Yeah. Let's listen now to the version uh, that you two uh, put on your new record. Sang that song, Abby. You try to feel the spirit of uh, of Sarah Ogan Gunning. Yeah, I um, I did a lot of uh, th- thinking and um, and I suppose you could say praying about the question of whether or not I was it would be okay for me to retell or resing what she was had sung and um, and I I found peace with it, so I did. Um, and I, I don't think I am able to retell all stories or 
Um, I've been learning a lot about that and thinking a lot about that as well. But this was one that felt um, felt important to share. And I had been um, one of the first times we did it was in a community in Charleston, West Virginia, and it was um, a community that was struggling with the um, polluting of the main water source uh, in Charleston be- due to coal mining. And um, and so uh, the community was very charged about this issue, and I'd been learning the song, and so we decided to present it that night. And which was kind of a wild, <laughs> wild thing to do. Like half the audience just went crazy, and the other half just sat on their hands with these stony faces. Well, yeah. Welcome to our partisan times, I guess. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, when I think about this song, I mean, I think the um, the words sound. Uh, like when they say, let's sink this capitalist system in the darkest pits of hell, that is certainly inflammatory. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the things I'd like to say is I don't, I, don't, I don't think of capitalism itself having any power. It's humans that use capitalism and wield it in certain ways. And if you don't, if you don't use capitalism with a, um, a strong measure of generosity and thoughtfulness and consideration, then it is um, just another beast in the hand of, hands of humans. So um, I think that's what it often becomes, and it's uh, it's nothing new to this age or the ages of the past, and we need to keep remembering it. I think it's interesting that you bring this up because the two of you, like so many artists today, um, I assume I'm right, have got to be doing a little wrestling with how far you want to dip into the political environment in which we're living today. Uh, this song brings you right up to the edge, but I suspect you don't want to go too deep in that at this point. Am I right about that? That's a good question. It's it's a, it's a dance, really, um, because we you know we don't want to turn off half of the audience. We we want everybody yeah. there. I remember um, um, playing with the Flectones, and there were some places where it felt incendiary when we first showed up for me to be showing up with these guys at these bluegrass festivals. And some people would love it and some people would walk off, but I would always think we were doing a service to everybody by showing up. And that, um, like, or even let's think about like when when Abby and I went to Tibet uh, with uh, the Sparrow Quartet, and we ended up playing for these audiences and we were very controlled by the Chinese government about where we could go and what we could do. And we we were wrestling with whether we should go or not. And we decided that the impact of us performing over there and people seeing us um, doing our thing in our own way. And the firsthand experience of what it would be like just experiencing it ourselves, yeah. Yeah, we decided to go for it. And, and we, we did feel people really responded to the freedom that we had in our, in our performance, although we, were, we couldn't go talk to anybody. We were kept from interacting with the audience. Sometimes, um, you know, you know, the very people who you hope would hear your message are... If, if you repel them, then they, they don't get a chance to hear it. So, I mean, we're, we're not taking a hard line of, of um, these people are wrong, these people are right. But, but in, the, in this new record, we're definitely um, responding to the world we live in, in the songs that we wrote. And, so they, and the songs we chose to do, like that one. Yeah, and I, I don't feel drawn to music because it represents my partisan interests. I'm drawn to music because of its, the, the universality of it, the soulfulness of it, the connectedness of humans through music. So um, that's what I want to share on stage. That's what I care the most about. And I also come from a home with a father that was Republican and voted Republican my whole life and a mother that was 
wildly progressively Democrat and voted <laughs> Democrat my whole life. So I've always sat in the middle and listened to both sides, and I'm very comfortable with that. She likes to find the peace, peaceful, you know, thing. You know, um, it's like uh, like the guys in uh, in Spinal Tap. You know, uh, um, Derek Smalls is saying um, that one of them is like 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 ice and the other one's like fire and that his job is to be lukewarm water. <laughs> um, but my upbringing was deeply democratic. And not only that, I got to Manhattan, grow up. You grew up in Manhattan, of course it was. Yeah. And not only that, I got to grow up with, uh, you know, with peace marches and, and civil rights movement and all this stuff. I got to see it all firsthand. And so for me, I was like, yeah, let's, let's speak out. So we actually, when we were writing the songs, I tended to be in a more have more aggressive verse ideas and angrier verse ideas and Abby had a different point of view and we had to find the place where we both felt we were represented in, in some of the songs. So we just heard your take on the Sarah Gunning song but there's another song on your album which you wrote about coal country in Kentucky. It seems to me it's a little bit more idealized vision of that area. Take Me to Harlan is about Harlan County, Kentucky, right? Yeah, it is. These songs go together like hand in glove for to me and I think to Abby as well. And also historically, a lot of people have had to leave those, those um, coal camps and those coal places and have left very hard times behind and moved to... Uh, you know, like a lot of people move to uh, to Ohio from Kentucky. There's this whole whole areas that are built out of people that have, you know, moved out of Kentucky and away from all of that. But you know, it's still part of them. And so this song is kind of about people who who are, uh, have escaped that part of their their background, but it's still part of them. And I think you could apply that to like Bela and me. Like you can't take the Manhattan out of the the kid who lives in Nashville, and you can't take the Midwest out of the girl who lives in Nashville, right. or the suburb out of the, you know, I mean, it's like, it's just a, a piece of who you are, and even if there's hard times represented back there, it's also a deep part of the fabric of yourself as a human being, and you say, regardless of all the stuff that went down there, there is, that is a, it's it's a home in my heart, and I want to be there, I want to go back. I can never leave completely. You have completely reinterpreted that for me. I mean, Harlan County, we know, uh, in the 70s was the uh, uh, scene of, of terrible violence when uh, miners went on strike against Duke Power. Uh, in the 30s, uh, it was bloody Harlan because of uh, coal miner unrest. So so now I hear yeah, your song differently. It's charged. It's charged. But it it was completely uh, on purpose. In fact, we have this collaboration we've been doing with a dance company called Palabolus. And, oh, they're a tremendous company. Yeah, they're very, very cutting edge and, and unique thinkers. And um, they asked us to do a, come up with a piece for them, and we started playing them the music from the record. And they're the ones that said, you know, those two songs go together. They're, they're part of, and we, and we all sort of struck us, oh, yeah. I mean, we weren't even thinking about it. Mm -hmm. 
a lot of things happen in your unconscious when you're making a recording, when you're writing music, and you don't find out till you've gotten. I'm sure you've heard this from a million performers, writers, songwriters. You don't discover till a while later why a lyric that you couldn't let go of stayed in the song, and you realize, oh, well, that's why. So in mid-December, I was listening to the Opry one Saturday night, and you two came on uh, singing songs from the record. And what was, I thought, thrilling for, for anybody on that particular night, it was one of the periods of time when the Opry's back at the Ryman Auditorium, which is always a thrill, obviously, isn't it? Oh, it yeah. is. It is. That's the stage where bluegrass was essentially born, or it was come. It's coming out party. Let's say when Earl Scruggs first yeah. played with Bill Monroe. Bill Monroe, in that band like forty six, I think it was. Yeah, right yeah. around then. Yeah. And uh, and and that was the shot that was heard around the world um, when when bluegrass was basically invented. The, the, he joined uh, um, Bill Monroe's band, and Lester Flatt was in the band, and it was it, and they and they went on the radio. It was like being like when the Beatles were seen on Ed Sullivan. It, right. it was that kind of impact, yeah. and that was the birth of bluegrass as a uh, as a huge power, musical powerful offering. So on that particular show, uh, I wished I could have seen it because you ended up dancing. Yeah, yeah, I was um, uh, doing um, some very basic Appalachian clogging. Um, to be percussive dance steps while while singing and bouncing around. It's going to be a little harder now, though. <clears throat> I'm uh, five months pregnant, and uh, the the belly is getting very big, not to mention other parts, and very floppy. Yeah, but on the recording that we heard as well, Abby is dancing, and that percussion that you hear on, on Take Me to Harlan is, is all Abby's feet. It had been a lifelong dream to dance and sing at the same time, and I, I got there just before uh, we got pregnant with the second child. So, um, and I was able to dance through the first trimester, but it's becoming a little more questionable. Yeah. We're going to go home and practice and see if we can work it out. <laughs> if we can, I'd like to go out playing a portion of another song on the record. Um, I really think Let It Go is... I loved it because it strikes me as being different from almost everything else that's on this record. I don't know if you'll agree with that or not. But we hear you singing with a grittiness, uh, Abby, and uh, Bela, a lot of the playing on it is you capturing some of those essential rhythms of roots music. And then you do this kind of angelic uh, number, Let It Go, and I think it's a beautiful way for us to go out. Fair enough? Is that a good song for to take this out with? Sure. Oh, yeah. We we felt a lot of things writing that one. It Tell about me about letting... that before we hear it. What does that mean? Uh, we were writing it um, just after taking our son to school for the first time. And uh, we just um, feeling how fast uh, time goes and wanting it to slow down. And um, I, I had trouble getting through it the first couple times. We came up with some words and... Um, knowing it was connected to our son growing yeah. up so fast. And we put put a lot of little references in the song to things that were going on in his life, like the fairy tears. They have this thing at his Waldorf school where they hide these little little uh, shiny tears, I guess you'd call them. I don't know what you call them, little pebbles that have been shined up. And the kids look for them in the sandboxes and stuff, and they're so excited when they find a fairy tear. Uh, and he comes home all excited. So we put the fairy tears in the song and, and all these little references to, to him. And um, and that feeling of of uh, of how, you know of, of growing up and watching him walk away all adult all of a sudden when you know he was just this little guy that couldn't stand up. So um, when we played it for him, it was really a shock because um, 
we just we just were playing the the record for him, and it, that song came on, and he just started weeping, and we couldn't believe it. We were just like, "You're feeling the intensity that we feel about this song." And he said, "Mama, Papa, does that mean we won't always be together?" Oh, <laughs> it was God. something. He was what? Yeah, was he about a year ago? Yeah, yeah. It's probably three and a half. Oh. Not even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The lyrics to this song are so beautiful. Here's just some of what you wrote. When the time has come for us to part, will you hold my hand? Sorrow dancing circles round my heart, will you understand? I don't want to cry. Come on, baby, try and let it go. Princes, kings, and noble bravery, fairy tears will fall. When the time has come for us to part, will you hold my hand? Let me rock you, walk you to the gate, watch you run away. I've watched both my children grow up and go off to start their own lives, so I get exactly what this song is about. Bale of Flack, Abigail Washburn. Um, it's been such a joy to talk to you. Your record, Echo in the Valley, is it's it's extraordinary, and I'm so glad you could be with us and let let me talk to you about the record and about your lives. Uh, thanks so much for joining me for Two Way Street. Thank, Thank you, you for having us, Bill. Posted a lot of added content about Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn on the Two Way Street website and on our Facebook page. You can see a video of Abby dancing to Take Me to Harlan and one of Bela playing that giant upright bass banjo that he told us about. Plus, although Abby and Bela talked about the tightrope act that many artists are performing these days to avoid becoming too overtly political, There is a song on Echo in the Valley that's a response to the election of Donald Trump. We have a link to that song, too. Next week, we're going to continue our look back on some of our favorite shows since Two Way Street went on the air four years ago. We'll revisit our conversation with the astronaut Scott Kelly. He'll talk with us about what it was like to spend a year in space. You know, I'd been there previously, uh, you know, four years previously, and you get on board and you're like, ooh, it's, it's looking the same, sounding the same, smelling the same. And I'm day one of a year in space. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Our producer is Olivia Reingold. Olivia edited this week's show. Our engineer is Tyler Morris. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for being with us. I hope to see you again next week for another Two-Way Street. Mm-hmm.